University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here, on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play-space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and for this episode, I chatted with Sue Elliott, lecturer and researcher at the University of New England. So I'm a senior lecturer and course coordinator in early childhood education at UNE. Uh, I focus particularly on science and sustainability unit that we have, but I also work around uh, curriculum and around uh, learning environments for children. One of Sue's main research areas is understanding the benefits of nature play and how children's learning and development can benefit from exploring and interacting with the natural landscape. Historically, in early childhood education, um, there are theories going back a long time to Froebel and Pestalozzi that talk about children, young children particularly, but needing to be outdoors and playing in natural environments. Uh, my perspective is that over the last century, particularly since industrialisation and manufactured play spaces, we seem to have lost our way a bit. And what's happened probably over the last uh, two decades, perhaps from the mid-1990s, is that there's been a real resurgence in nature play and uh, research around the benefits of nature play and children being outdoors. And whether that's climbing trees, jumping in puddles, um, collecting leaves, all those sorts of things are absolutely uh, quintessential in terms of children's learning and development. And some people would see the outdoor play in nature as an antidote to modern childhood, that what we see is that children are spending more time with indoor leisure pursuits, often technologies, but not always. Houses are bigger on smaller blocks of land, particularly in Australia, Parents tend to be more risk-averse and counsels similarly with their playgrounds. It's all about safety, safety, safety. Look, there's a range of benefits that have come through uh, the various research studies that have been done. Uh, there can be benefits, just to give you a snapshot, there can be benefits around children's language development because there are many more provocations for language, sort of learning different words, names of flora and fauna, names for positional uh, language as well about you've got to go under the rock and over over the log and watch out for that prickly branch. So all that sort of language enrichment that can happen when they're out in a natural environment. There's also um, different social dynamics that often occur outdoors as compared to indoors. And the experience that I've heard from educators uh, is that often the children that might have um, quieter voices inside are actually louder outside and take on more leadership roles in social situations. So it's for some children, it might also encourage them to challenge themselves more and engage in their own risk, risk management. Because when you think about it, all the, the equipment that we typically use in centres and schools is all ergonomically designed. 
and you only have to go up and down it a few times to realise that, you know, the footholds are in the right place and the handholds are in the right place and you could almost do it with your eyes closed. But you put those same children out in a nature place base, climbing a tree or even just balancing on a low log, and there's a range of different uh, different risk dynamics that are there, whether it's to do with spatial awareness, um, the positioning of their, their body, the core strength, which is something that people are asking questions about from a health perspective. Uh, and I also know that uh, from the work I did at the Botanic Gardens with children that there are some concerns about children's stamina, physical stamina these days. Children would say, well, we've walked for 10 minutes, you know, where's the coffee shop? Well, really, you should be able to walk for more than 10 minutes. There are other benefits that I noticed, uh, particularly when I, I did the first study of uh, Australian Nature Play program in 2000, that was 2012, I think now. There were also community benefits in that parents were uh, joining in more with the program, particularly fathers were joining in more. And also from the perspective of the educators particularly it often means that educators are are creating partnerships with other people in the community that they would not normally engage with so people like uh, park rangers or people in uh, community gardens if they're visiting community gardens a number of programs have connected with local indigenous people as well so there's a cultural enrichment and a cultural exchange that can occur with um, Indigenous uh, storytelling and, and drawing with children as part of those nature-based programs as well. Some of the most important learning opportunities that children can experience while playing in nature include teaching them to manage risks and manage their own behaviour in the face of risks. The temptation to protect children from harm by designing overly safe play spaces in the long run, may actually be doing more harm than good. You know, you've heard the words bubble wrapping children and wrapping them in cotton wool and all those sorts of things. That people, uh, parents, um, management bodies, etc., become very risk averse. And and what's happened is that there's been a shift of thinking around risk in the last twenty years or so, particularly emanating from the work that was done in the UK. And the notion is that we need to be risk positive, that we see risk, experiencing risk as beneficial to children. Now, it doesn't mean that we put all the children out there and throw them in the deep end of the swimming pool. That's, you know, that's, that's not what it's about. But it's creating opportunities where children can learn about managing their own risk from an early age. It's important to learn about risk when you're younger rather than when you've had a few drinks and behind the wheel of a car at 18. You would rather some of those risk management strategies, understanding your own skills and abilities, being able to read the landscape and being able to act accordingly. And we all have different thresholds for risk. Some people like to drive really fast in their car and they're not worried about it. Other people <laughs> have, have you know, stayed quite within the, in the limits. So, so it's about working, about working out your level of comfort with risk and then how to read the landscape to take risk in relation to your own body. And of course, there are educators there to support children in that process. So there's a lot of advocacy around embedding uh, risk management um, as part of the learning process for children. There's There are so many benefits of that for children. You know, that, that feeling of, 
I have mastered balancing on this log today and I've tried it 10 times before and I've, I've managed the risks of being wobbly and potentially falling off, but I've actually managed it. And we're not necess- when, risk, when you talk about risk and children's play, often people think, well, children have to go really high for something to be risky. But it's not necessarily about being high. It could be just balancing on a log on the ground or jumping between some stepping stones and realising, can you jump that far or can't you jump that far? And if you fall, it's not going to be the, you know, the end of the world. But developing that risk management skills and, and the resilience skills. And I think with a lot of the very highly manufactured types of play spaces that we we take that element of risk management away from children it's all taken care of in the design and then that leaves parents to sort of and educators to stand back a bit more and say oh the safety's already been taken care of we don't really need to do very much there have been perspectives in the past where that you you know a play space for children needs to be a flat space And what I see now more in centres where they're redesigning outdoor spaces, if there are particular landscape features like a slope or particular, you know, large trees or there might be an area that looks like a drainage line that could be a creek, you know, a sort of mini dry creek bed or a wet creek bed. If uh, Trickle streams are very popular in early childhood centres these days. So it's about... Uh, re- reshaping that to f- to fit with the actual landscape and realising, capitalising on the potential of the landscape rather than simply saying, no, we've got to clear fell everything, it's got to be flat and um, no trees and we'll have, you know, a couple of bushes around the, around the edge. When chatting with Sue, she talked about forest schools that embrace nature play and emphasise the benefits of learning in nature to the fullest extent. I wanted to know what forest schools actually look like and how they actually work in practice. I have to say there's no one answer. There's variations on a theme. So every community is different in how they engage in forest preschool, nature kinder, bush kinder, whatever you want to call it. The original model that came from Scandinavia was that children spend all day every day in the forest. And I've been to some of those programs and they're There's very minimal indoor space. There might be a kitchen and a bathroom, but essentially the children are outdoors in the forest. doesn't matter what the weather is. In Scandinavia, it gets pretty cold. So that's that's one model. We don't have that sort of approach in Australia as yet. The approach that's used most commonly in Australia is children are going into natural environments and they're typically going for a day or half a day every week. So it becomes part of the regular uh, program of the centre. Typically, it's the three to, three to five age group, but I, I know that there are some centres that are taking babies out, so babies and toddlers, and that's quite common in Scandinavia where babies and toddlers would be taken out in uh, big prams, four children sitting in a pram. So there's no one right or wrong way to do it. There are variations around a theme But the key things are that the children are getting out into natural environments and they're doing this on a a regular basis. And in Australia, we do need to have a range of risk management policies like they have in other programs that support um, how you deal with high winds, thunderstorms, snakes, um, stray dogs in public parks. 
Um, there was even one policy around what do you do if you find a nude bather on the beach uh, in one of the beach programs. So, uh, you know, but all those policies are in place and, and the programs seem to be working very well and are certainly growing. There are a diverse range of parents that have an interest in these programs and the parents do get, as I mentioned before, they do become very involved in these sorts of programs. Uh, the one that I, where I did the research, the first one in 2012, the parents became really strong advocates for these programs and it was almost like a badge of honour, you know, my child goes to this sort of program and, and they tell all their friends about it and people are really interested. I, I think one of, the, one of the challenges is for educators is if you want to start such a program, you need to think about why you want to go, absolutely, but you, will, you need to get everybody on board with you, the staff, um, the other educators, the management body and the parents. Um, and it becomes a, very much a shared community process of building those understandings and then um, reassuring parents about risk management policies and that, yes, children are still learning and they're playing with sticks. Um, I think a key thing for educators to do when the program gets up and running is to convey to parents, document children's learning. So they're observing and documenting children's learning and then conveying that to parents about what, what children are learning in these spaces. When the programs began in Australia, there were a lot of professionals, colleagues that were interested and there were government departments that were interested saying, you know, well, what exactly is happening in those programs? And uh, so the documentation linking it to the curricula has been very important to demonstrate that we are achieving uh, the learning outcomes, that we're maintaining appropriate um, high-quality early childhood programs, irrespective of whether we're indoors or we're, we're out in the, the local park or bushland or wherever it might be. The benefits of getting kids playing outdoors are numerous and extend far beyond the child's own individual development. Interacting with nature also provides more opportunities to teach into critical subject areas such as ecology, biology and the importance of sustainability. Just to give you an example, I was involved in a project on the, with a centre on the New South Wales coast and the children and the educator involved in that research project very much worked together exploring their local environment and what they found in their local environment were there were lots of uh, native frog tadpoles and there were also um, some gambusia fish which are introduced fish species and if you look at them, the children could see how, how similar the gambusia fish and the tadpoles looked, very similar size. But they also found out about the relationship between the gambusia fish and the tadpoles in that the gambusia fish eat the tadpoles. So you can imagine children's concern, our, our native tadpoles are being eaten by these introduced gambusia fish. But in the hands of a very capable uh, teacher there, it it uh, led to a lot of different learning experiences and without going into all the details of it, um, you can read about it, we've published about it, but the two key concepts that came out for those children were about balance and belonging. All right, so balance of populations, the gambusia fish and the tadpoles, and a sense of belonging. Does a gambusia fish belong 
It came from North America in the 1920s. So what belongs and what doesn't belong? Now, to me, they're really big ecological concepts that you can look at from many um, different sociocultural, environmental sorts of perspectives. But the, the experience those children had uh, exploring that concept um, in their local environment and also in their centre developed a much a, a deep understanding of those, those concepts and ideas. Uh, alongside of that, they were doing things like taking out the litter grabbers to collect the rubbish in the waterways because they were observing the local water birds um, eating, eating the rubbish and they were designing bird-proof bins for, uh, for management to put into that space so that the birds weren't, weren't, weren't getting into the rubbish bins and e eating rubbish. So there were strong environmental concerns that were, were coming out of that as well. Uh, without sound, trying to sound ancient, I started doing this work in 1986 uh, around advocating for, as it was called then, environmental education in early childhood. We now tend to refer to education for sustainability. It's been an emerging area, but over the last uh, decade, we've probably consolidated very strongly in early childhood education for sustainability. It's been growing for a long period of time. And it's important to recognise that Australia is one of the leading countries in this area in research and, and publication. Um, so we do need to start with young children and it's always been my approach that we need to convince early childhood educators that beginning environmental ed education or education for sustainability in the early years is absolutely critical to the development of those um, dispositions and values and worldviews that are, that are fundamental to sustainability. But then we also need to work with uh, educators, uh, environmental educators, to say, look, don't forget about early childhood. This is, this is foundational. This is where it all begins because there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, school programs, what happens in primary schools and secondary schools for environmental ed. But um, we need to recognise that the, the, the learning begins much before, well before children uh, get to school. At the moment, there's not as much policy support within early childhood education as we would like to see, but there's certainly a very strong practitioner movement to embrace education for sustainability. And it's more, I have to make the point that sometimes there's a bit of confusion between we've got this nature play movement happening and we've got education for sustainability. And yes, they do overlap, but they are not the same thing. Uh, I wrote an article a few uh, years ago now about nature by default in the sense that sometimes educators think, well, okay, let's, um, let's plant a vegetable garden or let's go out into some bushland and do some nice things with the plants. Um, therefore, we have done education for sustainability because that's a very comfortable space for educators to be in. But we need to recognise that education for sustainability is actually about critical pedagogies. It's about shifting and framing worldviews. It's thinking about values and it's thinking across the whole spectrum of natural environment, political, social and economic perspectives of sustainability. And you can do that in early childhood education. There have been many projects 
uh, state-based projects that have won awards where uh, children and educators are involved in, in a range of projects, whether it's whether it's around water conservation or energy conservation that have a, ra- a range of impacts, uh, whether it is uh, working around wildlife conservation or it might be around beach litter. Uh, all of the state-based organisations um, have annual awards where they recognise these sorts of projects that are happening in services. I, I'm just trying to make the case that it's not enough just to do those so-called comfortable nice nature things with children that people like taking photographs of there are there are some uh, significant uh, discussions to have with children and this is not about doom and gloom it's not about burdening children with the responsibilities of the mess that we've made of the planet but it's about equipping children with those values and worldviews and skills that is going to facilitate them to for them to feel agentic and to feel empowered about the changes that they can make in in the way that they live. Um, And those sorts of things also align with the UN rights of the child. One of the rights of children is that they are able to be decision makers around matters that impact their future. And that's, to me, climate change is one of those fundamental things that is going to impact the futures of all the children we work with today. And um, as adults, we, we need, have a responsibility to, to work towards empowering children to make, make those decisions around their futures. Given the challenges facing the globe, from climate change to the management of natural resources, the importance of educating children about sustainability is becoming ever more apparent. I asked Sue whether she thinks the efforts that teachers are making now in educating about sustainability will be having an effect on society decades from now. Well, we haven't got decades to play with. And I think I was talking to uh, my colleague, uh, adjunct Professor Julie Davis from QUT. Uh, She and I have been working in this area for a long, long time. And at times she feels, and we both feel, quite despondent about there's not enough change and it's not happened quickly enough. And then, and then you look at the, the school climate strikes that were on last year and the work, uh, Greta Thunberg, who's become a, a leader in that field, and you have to think, well, there is change happening and there is a, ge- a generation of younger children, um, teenagers in this case, that are asking questions. And I do know some early childhood centres got involved in those climate strikes as well. They didn't take children on protest marches, but they did things like take children on a picnic and, to, and talk about the, the environment. And parents joined in on that too. So, so there, are, there is an awareness that's certainly growing, but we, we don't have decades to wait, and it's the children that we work with today that are going to be most significantly impacted. And there's quite a bit of research that's come out recently looking at the impacts of climate change on young children because they are at a critical developmental age where things like food and water shortages um, caused by extreme weather events, family dislocation, increasing temperatures causing increased diarrheal disease, all of these things have the potential to disrupt children's um, typical development at critical stages. And that interruption of their development at those critical stages will have lifelong impacts for those children. When the Boiler House Discovery Space is completed, it won't just be an indoor experience. It will include outdoor nature play spaces 
and building elements that blend indoor and outdoor experiences. Given Sue's expertise in nature play and sustainability education, I wanted to know what she would like to see come to life in the boiler house and how it could enhance the experience for visitors. Look, I'm very excited about this project. It has been a long time coming, but it's it's got everything on my wish list in terms of being child-centred, play-based, um, science, sustainability. It's those sorts of things are very are things that I've worked in for a long time, so I think it's great in that respect. I'm really pleased with the idea that there would be an outdoor area as well. And um, we've had some conversations about the outdoor area. The top of the wish list would be certainly that it, it incorporates the natural landscape that capitalises on that. Um, I'd really like to see some showcasing of what is the um, Indigenous flora around the New England tablelands. But also we need to think about what are the plants that are culturally significant from an Indigenous people's perspective as well. So those sorts of things can create uh, interest and provocations for learning for children in those outdoor spaces. Then we could also be thinking about some of the um, uh, sculptural elements that might be included in an outdoor play space beyond the natural elements sculptural elements that might reflect the history of that particular site or Indigenous culture or something about the New England tablelands that's iconic for the tablelands. I, I think from a, a natural heritage, cultural heritage type of perspective, those sorts of things could be, could be central to, to the design of the, of the outdoor space. The last thing I want to see is... Uh, is a rocket ship or something like that. That's that's not on my wish list at all. Um, you know, sometimes these manufactured spaces tend to put a rocket ship or a boat or something in every design and it's not really related to the context. You have to contextualise these play spaces to make them more meaningful and more authentic. And if, it, if, it, if they want it to become a, a destination space for families, you will go there because it has something different to every other play space. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country and has been brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Curiosity Built the Boiler House. Mm-hmm.